chapter 11. We'll read what is probably a familiar passage to you. Whether you've been a Christian for some time, all of your life, or very recently, or perhaps not a Christian at all, you're probably familiar with the passage we'll read this morning. Beginning in verse 28, through the end of the chapter, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. What we see now is a promise and a declaration of the easy yoke put upon his disciples, of the freedom from burden and endless toil and labor that cannot and does not result in righteousness or perfection and in salvation. Help us now to see the beauty of the heart of Jesus and to be so moved that we would love him more deeply and earnestly, that our lives would look different as we walk from this place than they did when we came in. God, cause us to behold the gospel in its full array of beauty and glory that we might behold the Son of God and worship Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer. It's rhetorical. But perhaps some answers will come to mind. What gets you out of bed in the morning? That is, what, what motivates you to start your day and to accomplish the tasks in the journey ahead of you for that day, for that week, for that season? What motivates you to, to get yourself out of bed? Maybe it's the good and right desire to provide for your family, to earn an income so you can put food on the table, keep a roof over your heads to clothe your children. That's good and right. That's a godly motivation. Maybe you're like me and you want coffee. And so the first motivation to arise is to go and make a cup of coffee. Maybe you're uh, waking up on a Saturday and a weekend after a long day's or long week's work, and you're excited to spend time with friends and family. You've got, you've got things planned. You have a birthday party to go to or seeing cousins from out of town. Or perhaps you're just now finally visiting that family that you've met from church, and you're excited to spend time with them. Or maybe you're decidedly unmotivated, and especially in this season, that COVID and the lockdown and the protests and the state of our country and the state of our world has gotten you down. You're discouraged. You're depressed. Maybe you're even despondent at the state of the world, at the state of your own soul. And so you wake up in the morning and you're not motivated. That you struggle to find a reason to put two feet on the ground and to go to work, to get dressed, to make your coffee, to go see your friends, to come to church. Well, friends, what might these motivations, good, bad, or indifferent, reveal about who we are, about what our most natural instincts and impulses are? 
about what our deepest desires and motivations are. Well, the Bible places this central animating force, what motivates us, it places this animating force squarely in our heart. That when the Bible speaks of the heart, it is not speaking of a place of emotions primarily, but a place in your life and in your soul that defines who you are, what you're about. It's the seat, yes, of your emotions, but of your drive, of what gets you out of bed in the morning, as it were. The heart, according to the Bible, is not part of who we are, but it's the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines us and directs us. And it's why Solomon tells us to keep the heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. It's Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. The heart is a matter of life. It's what makes us the human being each of us is. The heart drives all we do. It is who we are. But when it comes to the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only one place in all four gospels, 89 chapters of text, where Jesus reveals his own heart to us. That is, Jesus opens up here in, in Matthew, opens up and reveals to us this animating center of his life that motivates him and drives him what gets Jesus out of bed, so to speak, and what will ultimately drive him to the cross. Just consider this for a moment, that we have a unique and very special insight and knowledge into the heart of Christ in his own words. He has chosen to reveal his heart, his person, the innermost being, in his own words to us, as gentle and lowly. In the one place in the Bible where God the Son pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. And we are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus' heart, he says, is gentle and lowly. Well, friends, why are we so graced and blessed to know Jesus, the Son of God, so intimately that he would define himself to us as gentle and lowly, that he would describe his heart in these terms to us? Again, consider the context in which he's writing. He's just earlier condemned those who would seek righteousness and salvation through the, through the yoke and the work of the Pharisees, the laying on and the binding of laws and consciences by something other than the Word of God. He's condemned them and told them that it would be worse off for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment, for all those who follow under the yoke of slavery, of oppression, of laws that cannot free or give life or salvation. And he says that those who are burdened under such a law, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me, you who are heavy burdened, those who are labor. 
Why does Jesus want us to know who he is? Why does he care that we know his heart so intimately? It's because the heart of Christ is exactly what will draw us to him. He's revealing himself in such stark way, especially in contrast to the Pharisees, because he knows that it is what we need to be attracted and drawn to Christ, that his own heart is what draws us near to himself. His heart is exactly what weary and burdened and heavy-laden sufferers most desperately need. That is, he has the solution, the cure, for the heart that is oppressed and is downtrodden and is broken and is weighed heavy under the yoke of slavery, of laboring for their righteousness. It is exactly what heavy-laden sufferers most desperately need. And though he is indeed many things, Jesus, in his heart of hearts, is what is most necessary for him to be, if he is to be our rest. And that is gentle and lowly. Just think about it. You're discouraged. You're anxious. You're, you're weary. You feel lost and you're unable to go any further under the burden that you carry. You're, you're losing hope and you're not sure that you'll be able to hold it all together for very much longer. You're ashamed and you feel guilty and afraid. If you're not there now, you will be. You'll face the temptation to find yourself fighting anxiousness, discouragement, exhaustion, despair, and hopelessness. But friend, if that's you, you will not find your rest in an austere and demanding heart. You will not find your rest in the dignified and exalted heart. You won't even find it, yes, in the joyful and generous heart, all of which Jesus is. Jesus labels himself and reveals himself in his heart as gentle and lowly because Christ is so perfectly inclined to be your rest because his heart is gentle and lowly. And it is the most comforting and restful disposition toward weary sufferers and sinners that we could ever need. It is the perfect fit for our souls. His heart in gentle and lowly is the key that unlocks our heart. It is what we need. It is that which we pant after, as if in a dry and weary land, which nourishes us, refreshes us, and quenches our thirst. Jesus' own heart, he says, is gentle and lowly. Over the next several weeks, we'll be looking deeply into the heart of Christ. This morning, we examine in his own words, the gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus' heart. But we will also come to see his compassion. We'll also come to see his mercy. We'll also come to see the Father's heart. We'll see Jesus' tenderness. We'll see the Spirit's leading. All of which reveal to us who Jesus is, most naturally. What his instincts are and his impulses are toward you. Friends, the purpose of this is not simply to know Jesus in an intellectual way, to pass a Bible knowledge exam about who he is. It's to know Jesus in a personal and saving way. That is, if you find yourself discouraged, 
You look to his heart as gentle and lowly and are encouraged. You find yourself in despair. You look to God as the father of all mercies and the comforter of the lowly. And you find yourself welcomed in his presence. You see yourself without hope or lost in the world and you turn to the guiding grace of the spirit to lead you to the cross. To know who God is in Christ in his heart is a balm for the soul of those who are weary pilgrims. And if for anything this morning, it's weary pilgrims. Jesus, in our text, says, Come to me. My heart is gentle and lowly. Let's then examine these twin characteristics of Jesus' heart, and then I want to zoom a little further out and then see how they come together for our rest. He says, I am gentle. I am gentle. To help us get a clearer understanding of what Jesus means by gentle, just consider these three other times, and only the three other times, that this word was used in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, earlier in the same book, verse 5, in what's called the Beatitudes, Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. The word meek there is the same word for gentle in Jesus' description of his heart. Further, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, he's quoting Zechariah 9. Matthew's quoting Zechariah 9 there. Speaking of Jesus the King, is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey. The word humble being the same as gentle. And again, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, just two chapters from what we read this morning, in giving encouragement to wives and to women to nourish more than anything else, the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. There the word gentle, the same as our own. So if we take these three instances of the word gentle that Jesus describes his heart as, meek, humble, gentle, we get the picture here that Jesus is not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exacerbated, or to put it another way, he's not trigger happy. Rather, we see that Jesus is understanding. Jesus is meek and humble and gentle. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So when Jesus says that he's gentle, This is what he means. But he says that he's gentle and lowly. So the lowliness of Christ's heart overlaps with the gentleness of his heart. And typically we think of humility in the virtuous sense. As in James chapter 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the virtue of humility, which is commanded all throughout the texts. But throughout the New Testament and in the Greek versions of the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms, which we studied this summer, the word for humble refers not to the the humility as a virtue, but to humility in the sense of being thrust downward by life circumstances. So, for example, in Mary, when she was pregnant with Jesus, sings a song and she uses the word humble or lowly to describe the way God exalts those who are of humble estate. That's the same word for lowly here in our translation. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 52. 
And in Romans 12, verse 16, Paul tells us to not be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. So we're not talking about the virtue of humility, but the circumstance of being humbled in life. The lowly estate, the humble estate. This means the socially unimpressive. Those who are not the life of the party, the ones that the host will cringe when they walk in. The generally unwelcome. So the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent resplendent glory and, and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. That's what he means, not only when he says, my heart is gentle, but lowly, that he welcomes, that he brings into himself those who generally are unwelcome, that he's accessible to all those who find themselves on the margins of society, who then qualifies for such fellowship with Jesus. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. So the answer is not just anybody. And it's not everyone, at least not indiscriminately. But to those who are burdened and exhausted by their labor, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Again, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply this to open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. It's your very burden that qualifies you to come. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Not earn your rest by coming to me. Earn your rest by unshouldering your burden but come to me and I will give you your rest. It is a free and gracious gift of Christ from his heart that is lowly and gentle. So those who are qualified to come are simply those who acknowledge their burden and their labor that has exhausted them and weighs heavy on their hearts. To come to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is to come to him with hope and help. What does this invitation of Jesus to come to all those who labor and are heavy laden reveal about the heart of Christ? It reveals that his desire that you find rest outstrips even your own. The desire to find rest is natural. You've spent all day in the hot sun mowing your lawn. You want a nice cup of sweet tea or water and some shade. You've worked hard all day. You come home from work. You want to sit down and enjoy the company of your family. You want to rest for a while. That's part of the biological cycle of our life. We sleep because we need rest. We need vacations and sometimes vacations from our vacations. It is right and good to desire rest. And when we consider the burden on our lives as sinners and sufferers, it's right to desire rest from such a burden. But Jesus' desire for your rest is greater and outstrips even your own desire for your rest. Don't miss that. 
But his desire for your rest outstrips and outflanks your own. See, for the penitent, the repentant, those who who acknowledge the burden of their own heart coming to Jesus, for them, Jesus' heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by your sin. It's never outmatched by your insecurities. It's never outmatched by your anxieties. It's never outdone by your own failures. He continues and always will be outnumbering you and outqualifying you in welcoming in gentleness and in lowliness. And that's because gentleness and lowliness is not one way that Jesus occasionally acts towards others. It is his heart. It is who he is. When you come to Jesus, you are not appealing to his gentleness. You are appealing to his heart that is gentle. When you come to Jesus, you are not appealing to the solidarity he shows with humans by becoming one of us. You are appealing to his heart for who he is as having taken up the cause of one of us because his heart is lowly. It is who Jesus is. And this is why his heart is exactly what you and I need as sinners and as sufferers, that our toil and our labor, which are all inescapable in the Christian life, Jesus puts us on a course of toil and labor. But our toil and labor flows from fellowship with a living Christ who is, and above all, gentle and lowly. And so only as we walk ever deeper into this tender kindness can we live the Christian life as the New Testament calls us to. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of the divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Jesus' own heart of gentle and lowly for all those who labor and are heavy laden welcomes us. And so the reality of walking in fellowship with Christ, he says, is the easy yoke. It is the easy yoke. When he says in verse 29, to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, you will find rest for your souls. It is restful because his yoke is easy. His burden is light. There is an easy yoke Jesus offers, which he talks about here in our passage. And by easy, Jesus doesn't mean free of hardship or pain. You can talk to the disciples and the apostles in heaven, and they'll make that very clear for you. No, an easy yoke doesn't mean free from hardship or pain, but rather it means kind. As in Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another tenderhearted. The word for kind there is the same as easy in our passage. So Jesus' yoke, a yoke of course is the crossbar laid across oxen to force them to drag farming equipment. Jesus' yoke is a yoke of kindness. And that's why it's easy. It's really irony here at play that a yoke is essentially a non-yoke. His burden is a non-burden. His burden is never a burden. His yoke is never a yoke. That is, it's never so heavy that it's uninviting. Putting on and coming under the yoke of Jesus is as much a burden to us as putting on a life preserver is to a, a burden to a drowning man. 
Putting on and coming under the yoke of Jesus is as much a burden to us as putting on a life preserver is a burden to a drowning man. So what are we to take from Jesus' insight about his own heart? That he's gentle and lowly. And that from the place of his heart springs rest for all those who come to him and who are labor and heavy laden. First, we're to see how our own heart compares to his. And secondly, it's to accept the invitation he offers from his heart. So consider then Jesus' heart in our own. So the first thing we need to recognize is that Jesus' heart is so unlike ours, that this is not our own disposition. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful, that is a human heart, is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. See, one thing that will quickly become apparent as we work our way through this series on the heart of Christ is that we are nothing like our Savior. We are nothing like our Savior. Our heart is so unlike His own. But that is a marvelous grace to us, friends, and it's exactly this recognition of the disparity between our dispositions, our hearts, our, our hunger, desire for what we truly are motivated by in Jesus's, that reveals to us just what is beautiful about the gospel, what is worthy to be praised in the person and work of Jesus. It's this recognition that qualifies us to come. It's what makes us burdened and heavy laden by the acknowledgement and the recognition of our sin our disqualification before God qualifies us to come to Christ. It's our own hearts which weigh us down and burden us. But this burden uniquely qualifies us to become then recipients of Jesus' very heart. That is the beauty and the splendid glory of the gospel, that you and I are unworthy to receive the gentle and lowly heart and disposition of Christ towards sinners and sufferers. And yet, it is in his heart, in his nature, to do it. That is, it would be alien and foreign to Christ to not do it. That his heart looks on the sufferer, looks on the sinner, and longs to bring those who labor under the burden of a heavy and ungodly yoke to come into the fold. Secondly, when we consider our own heart and Jesus's, we must know then that Jesus's heart, as gentle and lowly, is permanently so. That is, he, he doesn't change. And his heart and his disposition and his nature and his character won't change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So unlike our own heart, which is so fickle it changes with the weather. Jesus has never ceases to be perfectly suited as our rest. When we're tempted to be cast down because it's downcast outside, when we have a hard day's work ahead of us, where our children are not behaving, we're not getting along with our friends or our spouse, our heart is usually directed by one or two of those circumstances, and typically in the wrong direction. But Jesus, Jesus' heart never changes when we sin against him. It never changes when he looks upon our sin and our suffering. 
It never changes to the point where he becomes no longer desirous to come near to us or to welcome us. It never changes when he regrets, if he ever regrets his, his death. No, his permanent love and heart for us is always the same. It is for us. It is welcoming. It is always gentle. It is always lowly. He is always compassionate. And he ever lives to make intercession for his people. It's not the case with our hearts. But by God's grace, Jesus never ceases to be perfectly suited as our rest. Lastly, then, we have to accept the invitation that he offers then from this heart. He says, come to me. This is both an invitation and an imperative. It's a command to those with ears to hear to come to Christ. As a Christian, you may put into words your own coming to Christ as something you had no real choice to do. As Jesus calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. So we, when we hear the, the final and effective and decisive words of Jesus to come to me, it is as if we were awoken from the grave, from our own dead, and come to Jesus who animated us and gave us life. Come to me. And so in doing so, we have to shake off all of our false intuitions of who Christ is if we're to embrace his invitation to find rest in his heart. You see, we project onto Jesus all of our skewed instincts about how the world works. We maybe justifiably believe that if you're rich, you desire to have no association with the poor. You separate yourself by housing developments and neighborhoods, by the cars you drive, by the place you send your children to school. It seems justifiable than to think that if you're rich and Christ being rich in mercy would have some distinguishment from the lowly and the needy like ourselves. But friends, we're reading into this the fallenness of our own world. See, consider this insight from Thomas Goodwin, the, the old English Puritan and pastor. He says that we are apt to think that Jesus being so holy is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and is not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. I don't know about you, but I've thought often of God or of Christ having a severe and sour disposition. And it's right and good to think of God as holy. And reverence sometimes leads us to think of God in those terms and us to come in fear and in trembling before him. But we can conflate God's character and the heart of Christ as severe and sour towards sinners when we know that he's holy and just and we are sinners. But Jesus stands against those intuitions of ours. When he says, come to me, he knows that you will come fighting the temptation to believe that he doesn't really want you to come. He reminds us that his heart is gentle and lowly, and that is the invitation to come. That should dispel any myth about who Jesus truly is in our coming to him. Jesus' gentle and lowly heart means, ultimately, that even as he bids us to come, he comes to us. He will come to us. And it's not enough that he simply draws near to us, but he does so out of his own deep desire and longing to be for us who he is in his heart. He is compelled by his own nature to welcome us 
and to draw us near to himself by coming to us. No, he, he doesn't hold his nose as he comes to block out the stench of our unrighteousness. Just as he reaches out and embraces the leper, he embraces us in his arms, unhesitantly, welcoming, gently. Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly, and it is put on full display in the gospel. He comes to us, though God, he comes to us as God in the flesh. Philippians puts it beautifully. He, he set aside the divine prerogative and use of his divinity. He, he counted it something not to be grasped, his equality with God, and became a humble servant and suffered death on the cross. What was the motivation for that? Well, Hebrews tells us he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What's joyful about enduring the cross? The cross can only be joyful to Jesus if his very own heart finds joy in welcoming sinners to himself. That's why the cross was able to be endured. That's why he could joyfully go to his own death for the sake of sinners and sufferers like you and I, because he genuinely delights in the exercise of his own heart and nature and disposition of gentle and lowly and a myriad of other things for you. He does this unhesitatingly. He doesn't think for a moment or pause or weigh the cost. He gives himself freely, welcoming and gently as a friend. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're listening, or by chance you come across this online or hear this, or a friend is telling you this story, listen, accept the invitation to come to Jesus. Accept it. Know that you now, like Christian in Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, are suffering under a great and heavy burden that is weighing you down every moment of your life. And only at the cross is your burden unhinged. Only is it dropped at the feet of Jesus. And only then are you given the freedom and the kindness of Jesus' yoke. Accept the invitation to come to Jesus and find rest. But there's also an invitation for us Christians to receive. See, our Savior's invitation stands as open and necessary to us today as it did when he first uttered the words in the day you first heard it. To come to Jesus means not only to come for rest, but to walk daily in that rest. That is, come to Jesus in the morning when you, when you wake up. Come to Jesus in his word. Go to him in prayer. Receive the guidance and the leading of his spirit. Hear the teaching of the scriptures. Hear the admonishment, the exhortation, encouragement from a friend or a family member who loves you and loves Jesus. Come to Jesus in all the ways that he has given us to come, all the paths that he has laid out before us. Come to Jesus today and every day to find rest. For if there's any one thing that's true about our heart, it is as the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Jesus calls us to come to him today and every day after to receive rest and to walk and live in the rest and it is in his heart to offer such freedom, to offer such grace. That's what it means to come to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for the beauty of the heart of Christ. And although there is much more that we could spend in plumbing the depths and the riches of Christ's gentleness, many stories and examples throughout the Gospels that reveal and demonstrate it in our own lives that we can celebrate 
how the gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus' heart was given and extended to us. God, we must, for a time, end. So we, we, we pray, Lord, that our own eyes, spiritually, would be open to see the beauty of Jesus' heart as gentle and lowly, that we would walk in, in the confidence and conviction that he would never, ever turn us away, that his heart always bends in compassion to those who are needy, those who are suffering injustice, that those who are laboring and are burdened by the weight of a heavy yoke they cannot bear. Father, we ask that you would give us the spiritual motivation to pursue Christ fervently and eagerly, longingly, as he does pursue us, that we would know him and be known by him. We thank you for the words, in his own words, the heart of Jesus for us sinners and sufferers. And Father, we ask for those who are not here, who are Christians, or who are not yet believing in the trust and the work and the sufficiency of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, his own death and resurrection, that they would see not only in Jesus' words an invitation, but in his death an invitation to come. That he has bid us to come, he bids us to die, and to walk faithfully in a life that was nailed with him on the cross, dead to our sins, all grace and praise to you, Lord, alive to God. We thank you for this. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.